Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord that came unto Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. The beginning of the word of the Lord by Hosea. And the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take unto thee a wife of whoredoms and children of whoredoms, for the land hath committed great whoredom departing from the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, which conceived and bare him a son. And the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel, for yet a little while, and I will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu, and will cause to cease the kingdom of the house of Israel. And it shall come to pass at that day that I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. And she conceived again and bare a daughter, and God said unto him, Call her name Loruhamah. For I will no more have mercy upon the house of Israel, but I will utterly take them away. But I will have mercy upon the house of Judah, and will save them by the Lord their God, and will not save them by bow, nor by sword, nor by battle, by horses, nor by horsemen. Now when Loruhamah was weaned, she conceived and bare a son. Then said God, call his name Loamai. Listen to this. For ye are not my people and I will not be your God. As I read that just several weeks ago, I don't know when it was as we were reading through Hosea. As I read that, I had this thought, how horrible, how terrible it must be for God to say, I'm not your God, and you're not my people. You know, it can happen. It can happen to a nation. It happened to Israel. God saying, you've had every other God, and you've rejected me, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to turn you over to those gods. Folks, something like that is happening in America today. There was a time in this nation when, I don't know if God had center place, but God was respected. I was listening to a sermon yesterday or day before from 1961. Dr. Vance Havner was preaching. Now get this. I thought this was only a recent thing. But 1961, Dr. Havner said this. They're telling us today that we're living in the post-Christian era. 60, 70 years ago, they were saying in this nation that Christianity is passe. The Christian era is over. And we need to go another direction. And folks, we have, as a nation... And that's what's happening to us in America today. When Israel was told that God wouldn't have any more mercy on them, they didn't regard it. Just like today, we have preachers that stand in pulpits and say the things that are happening to us, that what we call natural disasters, and all of these other things, folks, it's God allowing His judgment to come upon us as a nation because we have forsaken Him. But when Israel was told that, you know what they did? <laughs> We're God's people. God has to take care of us. God has to protect us. And many in America are saying, oh, we're a Christian nation, though we're not, in the truest sense of the word. And God has to take care of us. God knocks their props out from under them. He says, no, I'm not your God. You're not my people. And what he's saying is, you're not acting like my people. And I'll not act like your God. He said, I'll have nothing to do with you. 
He says, you're acting in a way that is not becoming to being Christian people or to Israel, to being my people. You're not observant. You're not obedient to me. You don't listen to my word. You don't follow my word. And you are the people of whatever God you have chosen to worship. And folks, that's America today. We worship the God of sex. We worship the God of money. We worship the God of popularity. So many others that we worship today. And so God is saying, I'm not going to own you for mine, and I'm not going to protect you anymore. That's what he said to Israel. And I think God has taken down the hedge around the United States of America today. I believe one time we may have been a little bit of a favored nation by God. But we turned our backs. God didn't turn his back. He said, I'd never leave you nor forsake you. God didn't turn his back. We turned our backs on him. You know, something like that's going to happen at the great white throne judgment of God. I think Matthew chapter 7 verses 21 through 23 are a picture of the great white throne judgment. Jesus said, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy or preach in your name and in your name cast out demons or devils and do many wonderful works in your name. And what did Jesus say he'd say to them? He said, I'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. All the time you thought you were serving me and I was your God, no. You're not my people. You never repented toward God and put your faith in Christ. I'm so thankful that as a child of God, we can't lose our salvation. But you know, there's something we can do as children of God. We can turn our backs on God and we can just put ourselves out there ready for the chastisement and the correction of God in our own lives. His grace may depart us for a while. I think sometimes, you know, the scripture says that, first of all, we're not to quench the Holy Spirit. That word quench has the idea of throwing water on a fire. And we're not to grieve, and that word grieve has the idea of offend the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes as children of God, we can get so dependent upon self and so resistant to the word of God that God may just say, hey, try it without the correction and the conviction and the guidance of my spirit for a while and see how well you do. And that can happen to a child of God. And it can happen to a church. A great number of churches today have turned away from God. They've turned away from His Word. They've turned instead to the programs and the ideas and the thoughts of men. We're going to grow the church this way. Your brother Truman and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, and he sort of agrees with me, and I'm glad he does. I wouldn't be quoting him if he didn't. You know. <laughs> no, I might. I might say he corrected me. But he agrees with me. God has a plan for church growth. And you know what it is? Go ye therefore. In your going, be witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, a church can have the same thing happen. to God can say the same thing to them, he said to Israel. And in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, and we're going to turn there and look, we're not going to preach in detail about all five of these churches that we're going to refer to, but we're going to refer to their sins that caused God to say to them, repent or else. Well, I tell you what, it scares me when God says repent or else because I know what the else is, okay? And we can see it too very clearly here in the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation. Now, the first church we are quite familiar, should be quite familiar with, the church at Ephesus, and what was their sin? Lovelessness. Lovelessness. Thou hast left thy first love. 
That's their main characteristic. I think that's the, the chief sin of this church. Now, if you look at it, the church of Ephesus was a very doctrinally sound church. Look at what the Lord said. He said, you can't bear those which are evil. He said, you've tried those that are apostles and say they are not. He said, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. I mean, they were just right down the line doctrinally. In fact, they were solid as a rock doctrinally. And the Lord complimented this church because of that. But not only were they solid as a rock doctrinally, you know what? They were cold as ice spiritually. See, there are those that think you've got to sacrifice spirituality for doctrinal soundness. Or you've got to sacrifice doctrinal soundness for spirituality. No, the two go together. You can be doctrinally sound and you can be filled with and directed by the Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about silliness that some churches get into. The Lord said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. We know what first love is. It's honeymoon love. It's that love that a new bride has for her husband or a new husband has for his bride. You know when they can't talk about anybody else? Don't you get sick of that sometimes? No, we who are old and been married for a long time, oh, I wish you could. You'll get over that, all right? And sadly, that's what happens. Sometimes that honeymoon love fades as couples are married a long time. And sometimes they begin to take one another for granted. Sometimes they, and I don't believe in this, but sometimes they, quote, fall out of love. Or they just grow out of that marriage is what they want to say. Or they grow apart. Here's what happens. Just become so comfortable with the other mate that they become a part of the landscape. You know how that is. You've seen something for so many years in a particular place that when you drive by it, you don't even look for it anymore. It's just a part of the landscape now. And so you take it for granted. And that happens many times in marriages. And folks, that's what's happening in the Lord's churches today. We've lost the wonder of what it means to be a child of God. We've lost the wonder of what it means to be one of the Lord's churches. You know, there's a little thing going around on Facebook right now, and I like it, but over in Afghanistan or somewhere like that, they say, well, we're going to go to church today and we'll probably get killed, but we're going to go. And in America, people say, well, we're going to go to church today. Well, if there's not a family reunion, if it doesn't rain, if we feel like it, if company doesn't come in, if this and this and this and this. See, the problem is we've lost the wonder. Over there they haven't lost the wonder of being a child of God and a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did you ever look into the eyes of a child who's looking at something? You know, we take bugs and all kinds of things like that for granted and a child will just sit and look at a bug for a long time because there's a wonder there. Here's what we do. Good, got rid of that, you know. We've lost the wonder. We're like an old married couple. Our mate's always going to be there. And then one day they're not. An old man and an old woman riding along in a car. And she looks over at him. She's on the passenger side. And she looks over at him and says, Honey, remember how when we were dating and first married, we used to sit so close together? He looks back at her and says, I'm not the one that moved. Lord, we used to be close. Lord, church used to thrill us. God's saying, I'm not the one that moved. Vance Havner said it this way. We're so subnormal that if we ever became normal, we'd be thought abnormal. 
And folks, that explains why the worship doesn't thrill us anymore. I feel for Brother Rick trying to get folks to sing. You ought to be blasting him out. You know, we listen to the live stream. You know who I hear singing? Him. You ought to be loud enough that we hear him and you. Okay. I mean, the choir's doing the best they can. But we've lost the thrill. We've lost the wonder. Here's a church that had left their honeymoon love for Christ. And because of that, everything else is in danger. Because what does the Lord say? Repent or else what? I'll remove your candlestick. You know what that is? I'll remove your authority to exist and to operate as a church of mine, as a scriptural New Testament church. And folks, that's the one thing that scares me to death for any church. That the, you know, a church without the candlestick can keep meeting. And they can keep singing the songs. And they can keep having prayer. And they can keep preaching. But they're not His. And that makes all of the difference removing the candlestick, the Lord saying, you're no longer mine. You don't treat me as your God and you are no longer mine. Well, let's go to the second church in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and that's the church at Pergamos. Now, Pergamos means twice married, okay? Twice married. Well, how does that apply to this church? Because here's a church that tried to be married to Christ and married to the world at the same time. This is called spiritual bigotry. This is called spiritual adultery. And there are many churches today that are just like Pergamos. They're taking a worldly approach to worship. Hey, if it feels good, do it. If it draws the crowd, do it. We'll put on a big enough show and we'll put on an exciting enough show and we'll put on a good enough show that people are just flocking. Or that or we'll tape a $100 bill under the pew and let everybody know and see who comes and gets it. You know, We'll do something worldly to get people in to worship God. Let me tell you something. For the most part, the people who are attracted by worldliness to come into a church service aren't there to worship God. Amen. They're there for the show. They're there for what they can get out of. By the way, do you know that you're not here for you today? You're here for God today. You're not the audience. I'm the prompter. You're the worshiper. God's the audience. God's watching what's going on in this service today, and He expects to be glorified, and He expects to be worshipped. But so many today are turning worship into an entertainment event. Advance the church through worldly means. And some preachers use that in their ministry. I'll appeal to people. Now, I want to appeal to God. And I want to appeal to God's Spirit. I've told you what I want to hear when I stand before the Lord is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many. That's what I want to hear. And I want to serve the Lord that way. Now, look, this church existed. Look what it says in these verses. This church existed where Satan's seat is. What does that say? Well, I think it suggests that the city of Pergamos was a hotbed of worldliness and a hotbed of false doctrine. Folks, I think we exist where Satan's seat is. I'm not necessarily talking about our city, but I'm talking about just in this world and in this nation today that has so turned our backs on the Lord. It also suggests that this church was beginning to take on the character of the city of Pergamos. You know, there's a real danger that we as a church, if we're not careful, will take on the character 
and the culture of the community about us. You do realize that we are supposed to be in the world, not of the world. It's great when the ship is in the water. But it's not so good when the water gets in the ship, is it? And we have to be careful about the water getting in this old gospel ship as it's been called before. A New Testament church ought to influence society, not let the society influence the church. Even in the midst of these dire circumstances, though, the Lord had a faithful few. They would stand. They held fast. They loved the truth. They loved the Lord. They held fast to his name. They were not ashamed to be identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. But not everybody was like that. That's why in verse 13, the Lord says to this church, I have a few things against thee. There were two false doctrines going on in this church. One of them was Balaamism. What is Balaamism? Balaamism is a doctrine. It is a religion of the wisdom of the world. It's a religion of the worship of the world. It is characterized by the wickedness of the world. Now a lot of that going on in churches today. And then they had the doctrine of Nicolaitans. What was the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? Basically, it limited the growth of the church because of preacher rule and legalism. We don't believe in legalism. But you know, it's real easy for Baptist folks to get legalistic if they're not careful. We're not legalistic. So the Lord says to this church, he gives them another ultimatum. Repent or else. Now he may not always say it that way to each of these five churches we're going to look at, but it's intended in what he says to them. Repent or else. Refusal to repent, he's saying, will bring my judgment. Proverbs 8, 13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. See, when we allow a condition to continue that God says shouldn't continue, and this is the sin of Pergamos, we're lax. Laxity is their sin. They had two false doctrines in the church. They didn't do anything about it. They just let it continue. And when things are being taught, things are being done in a church that violate the word of God and we don't do anything about it, we're guilty of laxity. We sin when we tolerate what God condemns. Does God condemn some things? He certainly does. Does God hate anything? He certainly does. God hates sin. He says so in his word. He loves sinners, but he hates sin. Again, Vince Havner, it's possible physically to lose one's life by refusing to have one diseased part of the body removed. And he says something similar can happen to a church. Laxity. Number three, this is Revelation 18 through 29. I knew that we didn't have time to read all of these letters to the churches this morning. I guess we could take time, couldn't we? But we're referring to them. Verses 18 through 29, here in the second chapter of Revelation, Thyatira. Thyatira has been called the liberal church. And there's a lot of liberal churches today. And a lot of liberal Baptist churches today, a lot of liberal churches that wear the name Baptist. And they had, again, a lax attitude toward the truth. They didn't care for the truth. Now, the city of Thyatira was noted for its pagan feast and religious times that it had that were ungodly. But here's what the name Thyatira means. It means to weary or to wear out with sacrifice. 
So you know what God's saying to this church? You're wearing me out with your false worship. You're wearing me out with your unacceptable service. You're wearing me out by the things that you think are pleasing to me and you continue to do them and I won't have any part of that. That's what God is saying to this church. Now he complimented them. Jesus said, I know your works and I know your service. Works talks about our deeds. Service talks about our labor. He said also, I know your charity and I know your faith and I know your patience. So here's possibly a very loving church. They liked each other. Hey, they were like us. I think we like each other. We act like we like each other. You know. Here's what's something, something that's pleasing to me. and I've noticed this and I've mentioned it a few times. We dismiss services and people are standing in the aisles visiting. You know, and that's wonderful. Here's when to get worried when amen is said at the close of the service and the building is vacant like that. You know, then you got problems. But when people like each other enough to stand around and talk and visit after service, that's great. So here's a very loving church, probably, because the Lord says, uh, your charity, charity is love. He said, I recognize that. But here's a problem. If you're not careful, you can confuse love with acceptance of error. Case in point, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, they had a church member who was committing such a sin that Greek law, Roman law, and Hebrew law all forbade it. There was a man that was having relations with either his mother or stepmother. We're not sure which it was, but either of the two was illegal. And they hadn't done anything about it. Oh, we're so loving. Look, we're so loving, we'll just let you sin and go on in your sin and still come and we'll love you just like... Well, you know, love isn't always overlooking sin. I got a witness on the second pew right there. I chastened my children. I didn't say you can live however you want to live and everything's okay because daddy loves you. He that spareth his rod hateth his son, the scripture says in Proverbs 18. But he that loveth him chasteneth the times or while there is time. And so sometimes chastening is necessary in a family or in a church or in a life. So Thyatira probably had a reputation for depending on God and standing for the truth at one time. But what does the Lord say? He said, I got something against you. By the way, this just thought just popped in. Does the Lord have anything against us? If the Lord were to write a letter like this to Bethel, what would the Lord say to us if he were to write? Would he say, I have somewhat against thee? I'm just asking. I'm not offering an opinion there. But he said, I have somewhat against thee because this church appears to be in the process of deserting the truth. How do you know that? Because the Lord said, I've got something against you. And he said to this church, repent or else. See, Pergamos allowed those who held false doctrine. In Thyatira, they're beginning to teach false doctrine in the church. You read the letter. Here's what the Lord says. Thou sufferest that woman Jezebel to teach. Now we know that's not Old Testament Jezebel, but we know that somebody in the church, some teacher in the church who had all the characteristics of Old Testament Jezebel. Now you want to read about Jezebel, you go to the Old Testament and read about her. She was a false teacher. She was a troublemaker. She was an idol worshiper. And that was being allowed, and someone like that was being allowed to teach in this church at Thyatira. 
Listen, a church had better know its teachers and a church had better know its leaders. First Thessalonians 5.12, and I beseech you, brethren, to know them. By the way, that word know talks about having a close, intimate knowledge. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. God says, through the Apostle Paul, we just elected teachers last Sunday night, and I'm okay with our slate of teachers. I'll say that, you know. I'm all right. I don't have any problem with it. But we'll elect every year. We'll elect teachers. We better know who we elect. We better know that they love the truth. We better know that they will teach the truth. You know, we have chapels. And we have little children who are very vulnerable. I pastored the church one time. We had a couple in the church, wonderful couple. I loved them to death. But they'd only been saved about a year or so. And the church elected them to teach the 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. Folks, they, didn't, they were babes in Christ themselves. They did not need to be teaching 10, 11, and 12-year-olds. They needed to be learning. And so be careful when it comes time. Aren't you glad I didn't preach this last Sunday morning? Be careful when it comes time to elect teachers. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 1 says, In the last days, in the latter times, some shall be giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. Jezebel's teaching was leading believers away from God. That's what she was doing. She was leading believers away from Christ. She is said to seduce the Lord's servants. And that's what it means to lead astray, to lead away. And she taught them, it says, to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Committing fornication literally means play the harlot. So what's a harlot? You know what a harlot is. I'm trying to think of some nice names instead of just calling her what she is. A prostitute. Someone who sells herself for money and commit fornication. We're talking about spiritual fornication. Now we're talking about adultery. She was leading people in the church to practice adultery, spiritual adultery, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. Talked about participating in false worship. We don't need any part of false worship, folks. Stay away from it. Modern Jezebel seeks to pollute true churches with error. And listen, once error gets into a church, it is almost impossible to get it out. How do you know that? Verse 21, I gave her space to repent, and she repented not. The Lord said, I did what I could to cause this false teacher to repent and to quit teaching falsely. And this false teacher, whether it's a male Jezebel or a female Jezebel, refused to do it. You know how hard tradition is to get out of a church? I don't think you can. <laughs> Preacher, we've always done it this way. Or, what's the other Baptist phrase? We've never done it this way before, right? It's hard to move things that have been, by the way, you remember I showed you a long time ago how false doctrine gets into a church? You're just talking about the, the doctrine of Balaam? Well, first, it's called the error of Balaam in the scripture. And then it's called the way of Balaam. And then it's called the doctrine of Balaam. See, if you let an error go, it becomes a way. It becomes a habit. It becomes a tradition. We can't do it any other way. And when it goes for a while like that, it becomes a doctrine. You're wrong if you don't do it that way. False doctrine is stubborn. Don't think that Satan's going to say, okay, well, you opposed me, so I'm going to go away and leave you alone. <laughs> you know what he's doing when he goes away? He's circling back around for a rear attack. That's what Satan's doing. 
So don't think just because we stand up once to false doctrine that it's going to go away. The goal of false doctrine and the goal of false teachers is to destroy the truth and divide the Lord's churches so that they become ineffective in his service. That's what Satan wants. He doesn't care that we come here. He doesn't. You're saved, he can't get your soul. Maybe he can get your life. But he doesn't care that we come here as long as we don't take this out there. We're not bothering the devil today. Not much. Uh, he'll try to get some minds off of the message and things like that. But see, the Lord threatens judgment against this church for their unfaithfulness to him, their unfaithfulness to the truth. Look at what he says. Behold, I will cast her into great tribulation except they repent. You're going to have trouble unless you repent. If you don't get right, you're going to have trouble. I will kill her children with death and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. God is saying, the Lord is saying, I will discipline my churches. You know, there's a church, and I hate to say it, a church that I have pastored that is no longer in existence today. And folks, it breaks my heart. What happened? I don't know. I, you know, I just know that they closed the doors. I don't know what caused it. I know that they had, I think, some preacher problems and some other issues. By the way, that's one of the greatest problems in churches many times is the preacher, isn't it? You can do that. It's okay. I know that. As long as it's not this preacher. When a church becomes filled with its own ways, the candlestick may be removed. When we exist because we want to exist for our glory and for our pride, the Lord may take away the candlestick and he promises in verse 23 that his judgment is going to be based upon our works. So how are we as a church? So we've got lovelessness, laxity, and liberality. We need to take care not to let the spirit of Jezebel rule in our personal lives or rule in our church life. We need to be careful not to deny the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But here's number four, and you're familiar with it. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. The Lord said to a church at Sardis. By the way, I've never seen, I've seen one church named Sardis. It wasn't one of the Lord's churches. But I thought, why would you want to name your church Sardis? Because what does the Lord say? You have a name to be alive but you're dead. So lifelessness is another sin that will sink a church. Sardis was a dead church. Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. Either the Holy Spirit was not in control in that church or the Holy Spirit was not present at all in that church. Because the Lord said you're dead. You know where the Spirit is. Jesus said at one point, it's the Spirit that quickeneth. The Holy Spirit gives life. Sometimes I wonder if he's here with us. You know, some Wednesday nights, remember some Wednesday nights, I say, y'all sure look tired tonight. But where the Spirit is, there is life. We have a lot of spiritually dead churches today. They wear the name of a church of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're just as dead. And if you look at verse 20 of Revelation chapter 3, what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I stand at the door and knock. He says, I'm on the outside of my church knocking on the door, asking to come in to my church. Now think about that. See, this isn't my church, this isn't your church, this is the Lord's church. And he's here today 
Can we keep him from coming? We can put him on the outside. We can get so worldly and so ungodly and have the candlestick removed that the Lord say, I'm outside. At one time you were mine, but I'm on the outside, so we must be careful. He's pictured as wanting to come into his church. And see, when a church gets like that, you know what? The worship services are performed in the power of the flesh, not in the power of the Spirit. And I think a lot of that is going on in America today. Now, just because the Lord said they were dead doesn't mean there wasn't a lot of stuff going on in this church, you know it? I mean, he says, I know thy works. Talking about their deeds, the result of their labor. See, there are a lot of churches like Sardis today that are just as busy as a bee. There's something going on every night, activities, seminars, classes, this and that, and so much going on in the church that families don't even have time to get together at night because the youth got to be here one night and men here one night and the women here one night and then Wednesday night and then Sunday, you know, and, and so the family's never together and families, a family should never break up over the church because the church keeps them so busy. But there was something going on all the time. They had a name to be alive. But in reality, they were as dead as last year's Christmas tree. And a church like that lives on past reputation. I have a note to myself out here that says glory days. You know that every Baptist church has its glory days. I mean, remember back when... I've heard people say that. Oh, back when Brother So-and-so was here as pastor and the building was full and we had people walking the aisle every service, you know, wanting to be saved or coming for church membership. And oh, those were wonderful days. Why aren't they going on today? Hey, has God changed? Has God's word changed? Has the Holy Spirit gone out of business? Well, what does that leave? We've changed. It's not as vital to us today to get people under the word of God, to invite people to church. I said in a message a few weeks ago, we will have the kind of church we want. And a church is growing because people want to see it grow. And a church is dead because people want to see it dead. We will have the kind of church that we want to have now here's what it means to have only a name to be alive. Number one, it means to be void of the presence and power of God. Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. And so if we only have a name to be alive, we're missing him. It means they had become like those spoken of in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, having only the form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Going through the motions. You ever go through the motions? We do sometimes, not just in church, but for other reasons. There was no godly power in their lives or in their church life. It means they were merely playing at serving God. He said, I have not found thy works perfect. I've not found them complete. They didn't carry out God's purpose. Their activities didn't meet with God's approval. They prayed. I said, you can have the candlestick removed and still pray. They prayed, but there wasn't any power in their praying. They, quote, unquote, worshipped. You can worship without the candlestick. But it wasn't acceptable worship. They sang. And I would almost imagine that there was some beautiful singing. But folks, that's all it was. Singing. Because they were dead. There was a general attitude of disinterest. 
I would guess that Sardis, they had a name to be alive. I would guess they had a large attendance and people would look at Sardis and say, boy, I wish we could be as big as Sardis. But the attendance was for all the wrong reasons. People coming to be entertained. People coming to be seen. Let me show you what I just bought. I don't know. Like so many called worship services, it was just church as usual. I never want to have church as usual. We can have church at the usual times, but I don't ever want to have church as usual. I don't ever want to get to that point. I don't ever want to get to the point where it's preaching as usual. Had sort of a rough beginning to the week this week. And you know what I was tempted to do? Listen, folks, I've been preaching for a long time. And I don't know whether you want to call me a hoarder or a pack rat, but I don't throw anything away. And I got 40 years of sermon outlines. Now, when I die, nobody's going to want that. But I got them. And it was almost tempting to say, well, I'll just, since I feel sort of flat, I'll just get an old outline and just go through that. But I couldn't do it, thank God. He put this on my heart about two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Whenever we were reading through Hosea, I thought of this. I made notes to myself and set it aside because there were some other things that I was preaching. And then this, this was there. My opinion, the conditions at Pergamos and Thyatira created the lifelessness that was in Sardis. When you allow false teaching, when you, it goes on and, and you get away from God, then you're going to be lifeless. And so the Lord said, he even gives a church like Sardis an opportunity. He says what? Strengthen the things that are ready to die. Strengthen the things that are ready to die. Hey, you're lifeless. I mean, you're in, you're in the emergency room and you're on life support, <laughs> but you're not dead yet. Strengthen some things. What do you mean, strengthen some things, Lord? Well, what do you do to strengthen some things? You need to be stirred up. God's people need to be stirred up today. Folks, that's what part of my preaching is about, to stir us up. Not to have church as usual. But we need to be stirred up in the right way. And that involves prayer and action and encouragement in the word of God. Isaiah 64 verse 7, There is none that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. Talking about God. In 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 10 through 13, Peter says, I want to stir you up. But how did he want to stir them up? With the word of God. He said, I want to put you in remembrance of some things. And so the Lord says, you need to be renewed. First of all, strengthen the things that are ready to die. Then he says, you need to remember. Remember how thou hast received and heard. Do you remember what it was like to have just been saved? Do you remember the excitement that you felt? You've gone from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. And everything is new to you and, and you love it and you want to just tell everybody about the Lord Jesus. What happens? Well, we begin to drift and we begin to take the Lord for granted and we begin to take our salvation for granted. I have a term for that. I call it being saved too long. But a church needs to remember her calling and her purpose also. Ephesians 3.21, what's our purpose? Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. And most churches fail in their number one job today and that's bringing the lost to Christ. 
and then repentance. Repent. Make some changes. They were to repent of their sins. They were to repent of their failure of God. They were to repent of their lifelessness. You know what's needed in the Lord's churches today? And I hate the term I'm about to use, but I'm going to use it because that's the way the world looks at it. But you know what's needed in the Lord's churches today? Some old-fashioned repentance. Remember what I called it several times? Down in the dirt, tears in your eyes and dust on your head, repentance before God. There will be no revival without repentance. It won't work. James chapter 4 verse 9 says, Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. He says, Get a funeral type of grief over our failures of God. And the Lord gives a warning if we refuse to repent. He says, I'll come on thee as a thief. That talks about swift and unexpected judgment. And by the way, the church at Sardis no longer exists today. Why? Now, I believe the church at Smyrna was persecuted out of existence. They were a faithful church. I believe the same may have happened in the church at Philadelphia. But this church at Smyrna, I believe, just sort of went off into the sunset, you know. The number got small. Their enthusiasm got weak. And they said, well, we can't do anymore. And so they just sort of went their ways. The church at Sardis needed to repent. And that means confess their lifeless condition, put away their sin, and be controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. We got one more, and we're going to get it right quickly. The sin of lukewarmness, and we're familiar with the church of Laodicea. The Laodicean church is the church of this age, they say. This message fits churches today. Lukewarm, what does that mean? Satisfied with your present service and spiritual condition. There is a one-word definition for it, complacent. Somebody said the chief problems in churches are ignorance and apathy. And the other person said, I don't know and I don't care. Complacent. We're happy just like we are. Lukewarmness indicates that their service was lacking, but it didn't bother them. There wasn't any dedication. There wasn't any sanctification. There wasn't any witness of God. They weren't spiritually minded. They weren't spirit controlled. They were just happy to exist in the sense of ability that probably operated by human strength. And a church like Laodicea does that. It just exists today. I told you, there was a church, first church I pastored down the road, there was another Baptist church that was very small, and they said, we're just trying to hook in and hang on. That was their goal. We want to last till Jesus comes, and maybe he'll come soon and get us out of this mess. That's not what the Lord commanded his churches to do. He didn't say, hang around till I come back. He said, what? He said, we're to be working. We're to be witnessing. We're to be living. Here's the indictment. And first of all, we see what they said about themselves. We're familiar with it. I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. They confuse worldly wealth with godly approval. Hey, we got stuff, so God must be happy with us. Guess what? That may not be so. I believe God supplied us with this building. But just because we have this building doesn't always mean that we're always going to be right with God. You realize God could take this building away from us? A year ago it almost happened, didn't it? Thank God and thank Brother Scotty for saving this building. And we didn't have a lot of damage either, and I thank God for that. But they see themselves as completely self-sufficient. We don't need anything. We've got this. We've arrived. Don't worry about us. Nothing can be added to us. 
I hope we never have that attitude. But that's the attitude of love, Lord's churches today. And many churches are basking in their own glory and not glorifying God. So here's what the Lord says, thou sayest and knowest not. You don't know what your true spiritual condition is. You have no idea what your true spiritual condition is. You're complacent, you're lukewarm, you're self-satisfied. You have an unawareness of your actual deficiencies. And he's going to point them out, by the way. He says you're wretched and miserable. Well, that means you're, you're, you're to be pitied. Listen, a church that is lukewarm ought to be pitied. That's what Jesus said. And he says you're poor. In spiritual wealth, you're poor in wealth toward God. And he says you're blind, you're nearsighted, you don't have any spiritual vision. Do we as a church have any kind of spiritual vision? Oh, well, we support some missionaries in foreign countries and we support one here and we like to see people come and visit us. Do we have any other spiritual vision? No, we're not talking about getting some vision that appears before our eyes. We're talking about having a vision to the future. Look around you again. And he said, you're naked. You wear the rags of self-righteousness, not of God's righteousness. And here's what caps it off. Rather crude way of saying what the Lord said, but I'm going to say it this way. You make me so sick, I want to vomit. I want to spew you out of my mouth. He said that to one of his churches. I want to spew you out of my mouth. That, that's equivalent to removing the candlestick. I want to put you away from me. It's a promise of judgment. And a church like the church at Laodicea is ripe for that kind of judgment. Lovelessness, laxity, liberality, lifelessness, and lukewarmness. Five sins. According to what Jesus said in Revelation that will sink a church. I'm sure there are more. But I know these five things can be looked at in the Word of God and could put us at risk. Could put us at risk of hearing the Lord say, you're not my people and I'll not be your God. This message is intended to be preventive. Okay? Not corrective. Because hopefully we're not guilty of any of these five sins. And the cure for these five conditions, I think is found, I think they're found in each of the letters, but I think it's found also in that letter to the church at Ephesus. And what did the Lord say? Repent, remember, and return. Just look at it. He says, remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I'll come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place except thou repent. So he said, repent. That's the first thing you need to do. Remember what it was like to have been on fire for God and return to that. That's the cure for any of these five conditions. Now folks, we never want to hear the Lord say, you're not mine and I'm not with you. And the best way to remain faithful to the Lord and the best way to remain faithful to His Word and to have His approval is just to be obedient to His command. And what's that command? Go ye into the world and make disciples of every creature. That's why we're here. We're to, you said, I thought you said we'd get glory to God. Yes, that's, that's our purpose. And one of the ways of bringing glory to God is bringing people to Christ.
And that's what we need to be doing. I think time's running short. Jesus is coming back, and I believe it's soon. And oh, yes, we'll go. If you know Christ as Savior, yeah, we'll go. And leave a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker, a good friend behind because they didn't know Christ as Savior. And that ought to sadden us. Let's not commit these five sins as a church.